0: Welcome to The Q-Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about, but seldom talk about. You found The Q-Word Podcast. Hello,
1: Lisa. Hi, Lisa. It's been a minute. Yeah, we took a informal sabbatical. Yeah, a hiatus. Yes, a hiatus.
0: I, think, yes. I, I like it. But we, we're back.
1: We're back. We are
0: definitely back. And we're back with uh, this. this uh, so part of me wants to say this is a fun one, but it's not a fun one. But it's kind of a fun one. So maybe at the end, we can decide whether this was fun or terrifying. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So so this is called decoding urgency.
1: I really like that title. Nisa, what does that mean? So we're going to talk about three critical phrases that should make every ER nurse's ears perk up. Um, So three critical phrases, but we also are going to have like a bonus phrase in there that um, ER nurses can use. So uh, these are things that will make you snap to attention when you hear them um, and should make you probably move quickly. So like an exclamation, something somebody says.
0: Yes. Calm. It hurt that when you hear them. You should go. What? <laughs> Stop. Yeah. And r-
1: pivot and figure something
0: out. Okay. Yes,
1: and and just imagine in the emergency department, there's a, always kind of a lot of things going on, lots of conversation, lots of uh, chaos, and frequently you might hear this. It comes through the chaos and you zone in on that and go, wait, what? And then you move into action.
0: Okay. All right. So these are trigger words or. Yeah. Key phrases. key phrases. Key phrases. Okay. Yes. All
1: right. Um, mm-hmm. Wait, is this what the patient says or what the doctor says? Two of them are patient phrases. Uh-huh. The third one is neither one. Oh. And the bonus one is what a nurse would say. Oh, okay. All right. Hit me. So the first one is when you hear a patient say, this is the worst headache of my life. That should make you sit up and pay attention and ask a lot more questions. And depending on what happens next, you may get moving very quickly. The worst headache of my life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So not
0: just hyperbole. This is um, just, oh, my my head's never hurt this bad. Or um, I've got a really bad migraine. None of those things will trigger it. But the specific phrase, this is the worst headache of my life.
1: Right. So the patient may say that to you or they may say some things. um, These type of headaches have also been described. Uh, Lisa, will you read these descriptions that patients have said?
0: Okay. So being hit in the head with a hammer. All right. That makes sense. Like a lightning strike to the head, a jolt or shock. Okay. A sudden explosion in my head. I have felt some of these things in my day. I'm getting a little scared. Like being hit with a baseball bat or a thunderous roar inside my head, like a, like a really loud tinnitus
1: or So, if your patient says something like this where they're describing an abrupt onset of really intense pain, your follow-up question might be, is this the worst headache of your life? And if they say yes, then, so maybe they haven't described it exactly that way. They've described it in some of these other really descriptive terms. What you're looking for is an abrupt onset of very intense pain. This is going to make the ER nurse really pay attention and immediately do some some further assessment. And this is a medical emergency. Um, So, We know that migraine headaches, tension headaches, cluster headaches, those kinds that can get really, really painful and really, really intense, they have gradual onsets. And so they sort of ramp up the pain. That's not what we're talking about. This is one that comes on quickly and suddenly and is incredibly painful. So is this the kind of thing that happens
0: after uh, uh, trauma or is this the kind of thing that they come in to the ER specifically because... They have, they've been having this headache.
1: Sometimes it does, but generally this one does not. This is generally spontaneous. Okay. And so the medical term for this, this worst headache of my life, abrupt onset, is called a thunderclap headache and is sometimes abbreviated TCH, thunderclap headache. And anyone who's describing their headache this way, it's considered a medical emergency and requires immediate attention. So if you're sitting in the triage office and you hear someone checking in at registration saying I'm having the worst headache of my life, that's something that should make you like peek around the corner and be like, okay, I wanna see that patient next. Like they need to skip to the head of the line. The most common causes, and this is why it's a medical emergency, the most common causes for this thunderclap headache are subarachnoid hemorrhages. Uh, And that's very, very serious with some pretty poor outcomes that we're going to talk about. Um, The next most common cause is something called reversible cerebral vasoconstrictive syndrome, which is abbreviated RCVS. But there are a host of other things that can cause them, and they are all nasty. Do you Uh, want to read these? Yeah, okay. Give it a shot. (laughs) All
0: right, so here's a whole bunch of large words. Let's see if I can pronounce them properly. An intracerebral hemorrhage, subdural hematoma, or cervical artery dissection.
1: Those are brain, brain bleeds or an artery that has a very important artery that has split. Oof.
0: Okay, Mm -hmm. ischemic stroke or cerebral Mm -hmm. venous thrombosis.
1: So those are clots in your brain, very bad.
0: Okay, Um, spontaneous intracranial hypotension or acute hypertensive crisis.
1: So that means that the pressure in your brain is either way too low or way too high. Oh, okay, interesting. Intracranial infection and
0: complicated sinusitis. Okay, that one I can figure out, but
1: explain it. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've got some kind of infective process going on either in your brain or in your sinuses that are knocking on the door of your brain. Oh, and those can be acute, huh? So like a like cold or flu has gotten
0: so bad that it's, it's infected all the way up into your brain. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, an intracranial tumor third ventricle colloid cyst or a pituitary apoplexy.
1: So these are going to be
0: super rare, but medical emergencies nonetheless. Posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome.
1: So these are all bad Uh and they require immediate intervention. What we want to eliminate is these bad, bad things for these patients um, because in subarachnoid is found, uh, in 11 to 25%. So one in four, up to one in four, uh, patients that have a thunderclap headache have a subarachnoid and up to 35% of patients have some other kind of bleed when they present with a thunderclap headache. So this is what we want to, to go ahead and assess for and find out if this is what we have sitting in our triage room or in our, um, in our ED exam room.
0: Okay. So, so you're a triage nurse and one of your
1: patients says, I'm having the worst headache of my life. What do you do then? So you want to assess them immediately. You're going to do your rapid focused history and your neuro exam. So questions that you're going to ask are like, how severe is this pain? And you can use your um, one to 10 scale. And it may be that the pain has peaked and is coming down. They were saying this was so bad when it when it came on, that does not mean that it's not a bleed. So um, you wanna describe, have them describe the onset. What you're looking for is that abrupt onset. If it's gradual onset is their description and maybe it's not a thunderclap headache, um, you're looking for intensity that came on in about one minute or less. How long did the pain last? They say five minutes or longer, that's a red flag. And then you want to know in their past medical history, do they have any diagnosis that could account for this? So in other words, do they experience migraines regularly? Do they experience cluster headaches or tension headaches? And if so, you will say, like, does this feel like your regular migraines? And if they say, no, this is not like anything I've ever had before, that's worrisome. If they say, yeah, this feels like one of my regular migraines, then that's a little bit more reassuring.
0: Wow, so you really have to rely on the patient to be able to be sort of objective about the quality of their pain and the, uh, the acuity of it. Um, yeah. Okay, so what other kinds of factors can can cause thunderclap headaches or head bleeds like this?
1: So some of the other things that you want to know in their history: be really suspicious if your patient is pregnant or has recently been pregnant, like within the last six weeks. That's a high risk for thunderclap headache, subarachnoid bleeds. Also, do they are they a binge alcohol consumer? Do they have drug use, specifically cannabis, cocaine, amphetamines, SSRIs, certain nasal decongestants, medications that are used for migraines, specifically Imatrex and Zomig? There's a bunch of other medications that potentially could fall under this category. And then were they doing any kind of strenuous physical activity immediately before the thunderclap abrupt pain came on? Things like weightlifting, having a bowel movement, coughing even, sexual activity often can cause it. Uh, Are they on blood thinners? That's worrisome. And then you want to check their vital signs and be concerned if they are extremely hypertensive. That would be a concerning vital sign to find.
0: Is this the kind of thing that happens just once or does it happen over and over again?
1: Yeah, so if your patient reports that they've had multiple episodes of this over days or a couple of weeks, then that would be suspicious of the RCVS syndrome. Um, So that's something that you want to consider as well. Other symptoms that they may report or that you may see, uh, subarachnoid uh, hemorrhage can be accompanied with neck stiffness or pain, vomiting, photophobia, altered mental status, uh, loss of consciousness. A lot of times these patients are very rude, irritable, because they're in so much pain. They're kind of grouchy. Um, they're answering your questions. They're real short and snippy. Um,
0: it kind of describes me on a regular Monday.
1: <laughs> you might see seizures. You might see... Um, this is not very helpful, but you might see that some of the patients can't sit They can't tolerate sitting. It's too painful. Some of them can't tolerate standing. Some of them can't tolerate laying down. So it just depends on where the bleed is or what the cause of the thunderclap headache is, what position they can't tolerate. But if they specifically say, I can't tolerate a certain position, that would be suspicious. And then if it's an infective process, there may be a fever. And then um, again, that hypertension. The thing that needs to happen next if they're having these symptoms and they're describing this thunderclap headache is they need to get to CT scan. They need to have a non-contrast CT of their head and then would be really great if they can get a CT angiogram of their head and neck. That's gonna. So the CT of the head is going to uh, examine their brain and then the CT angiogram is going to be the vessels of the head and neck. I see. Um, if those are negative, then... The next step would be a lumbar puncture, and then uh, also they may need an MRI. That's going to be the one that rules in or out the RCVS syndrome. CT scan is the the thing that's really time-sensitive and important to get them to.
0: Okay.
1: So we've gotten them to CT scan. The treatment is going to be based on the finding of what is causing the thunderclap headache. We read that whole big, long list of all the potential causes. Unfortunately, subarachnoid hemorrhage tend to up to 18% of those patients are going to die before they even reach the hospital. That's how malignant that diagnosis is. And the mortality at one year is 35 to 65%. Uh, Many of these patients who do survive, about one third of them are going to have permanent disabilities in their activities of daily living. So the sooner that you can get to it, intervene and treat it, the better the outcome will be. Uh, With the RCVS, the R stands for reversible, but that really refers to um, the vasoconstriction. Sometimes the signs and symptoms persist even after the vasoconstriction goes away. So your vessels are lined with smooth muscles and those can spasm and that's what's causing the thunderclap headache they clamp down and it's just like there's a clot in there um, but it's the clamping of the muscle
0: i wish our i wish our viewers could see the uh, hand gestures you're making (laughs) that are demonstrating very effectively what you mean by the squeezing down
1: yeah i do talk with my hands on a podcast that's not great um but if this one overall has a much better um outcome and calcium channel blockers can help with the the um, spasming. Uh, some patients will end up with lifelong headaches, but overall, long-term, the, the uh, outcome is excellent for these patients. Wow. So. Okay, thunderclap headaches. I,
0: I admit I am now going to be very concerned every time I have a sudden headache that pops out of nowhere because it happens from time to time.
1: You just ask yourself, is this the worst headache of my life? No. Okay. Okay. But I'm very dramatic. That's true, you are. <laughs> Okay. So
0: what's the second phrase that should make us stop, drop, and listen?
1: So the second phrase that should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up is when a patient says, I'm going to die.
0: I'm going to die.
1: So any seasoned medical professional will tell you that when a patient says this, we take it very seriously. And... What I found really interesting when looking into this is there's actually very little research that has been done about this, what we call the sense of impending doom. I was surprised that there isn't more scholarly research on this, but frequently right before a patient literally codes and dies, they will say, I'm going to die. And as As uh, emergency providers, we believe them when they say that. And we start looking for reversible causes that we can treat really quickly. What has changed? Wow. But in the limited research that I did find, the hypotheses are that there's some kind of chemical that's being released by the body in those last moments that the patient is reacting to and they are feeling it or sensing it or responding to it. So here are some of the serious medical events that have been preceded by this statement.
0: Okay, so a heart attack, a stroke, having a seizure, anaphylaxis, a ruptured
1: AAA. Yeah, abdominal aortic aneurysm.
0: Cyanide poisoning, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very interesting. Uh, Blood transfusion reaction pulmonary embolism, a cardiac tamponade, and cardiac arrest. Okay, so a lot having to do with the mm-hmm. heart, at least three, mm-hmm. right? So this is not, I feel I'm going to die, or I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to die, or am I dying? This is, I am going to die.
1: Yeah, this is like the patient physically has a surety, and it is a statement, not a question. This is a statement of fact. And that's why, as nurses, we see it like we see them stating it as a fact, and it, and it comes along with other symptoms. Like we consider this a symptom, and the other symptoms that you might see: sweating, they're experiencing palpitations, uh, nausea, paleness, shortness of breath. Some patients describe that they are outside of their body and they are experiencing what's going on in a depersonalized state where they're watching themselves from another space, agitation. So they're pulling off the leads, they're pulling off the non-rebreather mask, they're trying to get off of the stretcher, they defecate, or they're saying, I need to to poop. That's the body's kind of fight or flight, um, eliminating that death poop. Um, And then, Uh, do you react the same way as a nurse,
0: depending upon the way in which this statement is delivered?
1: uh how do you mean say more about
0: that like uh, um i don't know um calm grandmother i it's my time i'm gonna die now versus a panicked grandmother pulling the leads off and um uh, indicating a sudden realization of a sort as opposed to a peaceful acceptance of a last moment Does that play any part in this?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when you have a little older person and they say, I'm a peace, I'm ready to go to Jesus, that is not what we're talking about. Or when you have a patient with suicidal ideations who says something like, I just want to go to sleep and never wake up, that's that's a whole different um, expression of I'm going to die. That's one that is also a medical emergency, but it's because they're saying that they no longer want to live. Um, the little old lady who's saying, "I'm I'm ready to be called up to the upper room," you know that's that's um, that's not a physical symptom. This is this is what we consider like literally a physical symptom, and the hypothesis is it's because it's like a chemical thing that is happening in their body as they're actively dying. So yeah, that's a great question. There, there are lots of, or or sometimes patients, and this happens very frequently in the emergency room, um, very frequently on the helicopter where a patient finds out they're being like life flighted and they say, am I going to die? Am I dying? They're asking the question because they need reassurance. and And we talk a lot on this podcast about how emergency medicine is reassurance medicine, where we are eliminating things and saying, Hey, we can t- we can let you know today that everything is okay because we've tested it, we've looked at it. Your labs are good, your X-rays are good, your scans are good, and and everything is good. So there's a lot of times when patients ask you, "Am I dying? Am I going to die?" That's a completely different category as well. So this is this is its own very unique special category.
0: I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's another one that that's a great line on television all yes. the time. Um, somebody that's another one that isn't necessarily, that's a, a reasonable ex, ex, um, exclamation of fear, but not necessarily a subconscious articulation of some physiological symptom that may be triggering your understanding of impending doom. All right, that's yes. very interesting. Yeah,
1: this one is a declaration of fact from inside the body that is dying, currently dying, about to die, actively in the process of dying, wow, yes. and. That is and so we talked about all these things where they're they're pulling at the non-rebreather and they're pale and they're sweaty and their heart is racing or maybe their heart is slowing down super, super slow. And then here comes this bonus phrase. So Dr. Cliff Reed, who is an Australian emergency medicine doctor, ICU doctor, says that um, they're, they have this positive LLS symptom. And he says that when he's in... The physician's office and a nurse peeks around the corner and says, hey, doc, I just got this patient in here and they look like shit. That is the bonus phrase. When he hears an experienced provider say, this patient looks like shit, that's the phrase that makes him stop what he's doing, get up and walk in to see that patient immediately. Or when he walks into a room and sees a patient and thinks, this patient looks like shit. That's a sort of a call to action for him. Like I need to do some immediate interventions and assessment and turn this patient around. I can
0: see that you, you know you, you tell us so many times about your day and things that you've encountered, and you're so clinical about it. it you, you very naturally slide into a technical talk, right? Like medical speak. So I could see why a medical professional who's articulating something so broadly, like there's so much wrong with this person, it's such a shorthand way of saying I I, I can't even start to explain. <laughs> what is wrong with this person they just generally look like like it's over like shit that's that's really interesting that okay let me ask you you said something about one of the symptoms being um, whether or not they're pale of skin. How do you uh, gauge that when uh, someone has dark pigmentation? Yeah, it's a great
1: question. So pallor um, being pale and and just looking kind of gray, even like bluish almost. That's something you can see from across the room. That's something that you can see when they're rolling down the hall before they even get to your room. And, and you can say, wow, that patient looks terrible. Uh, you can see it in their feet before you even get up to the head, you know, uh, as they're rolling in the room. So that's a really obvious one that tells you about kind of their overall appearance before you even have them on the monitor. But when you have a patient with dark pigmentation, that's something that takes is is more nuanced. And this is something that should not be missed. So this is where you are going to look at the palms of the hands. And my favorite is to look at the lips and at the tongue. The tongue is definitely, the oral mucosa and especially the tongue uh, will definitely give away pallor in patients with dark pigmentation. This is a really, really important assessment piece and important finding. Um, So it may not, in patients with dark pigmentation, may not necessarily be something that you can see from across the room if you're not looking very carefully at the lips, for instance, um, and then looking more closely in the oral mucosa and at the tongue. So it's a very good question, very important assessment piece. Okay, so
0: you've done your assessment and you've, you've thought this patient looks like shit or you've heard the patient say, I'm gonna die. What do you do?
1: Yeah, so for me personally, I am going to take them seriously, and I'm jumping to action immediately. I'm going to re-assess uh, them from head to toe. I'm going to look for what has suddenly changed. What did I miss? Uh, and I'm going to consider the likelihood of any of those conditions that we listed. Is this patient having a heart attack? Did they throw a clot? Is it in their brain? Is it in their lung? Is it in their heart? We gotta we gotta find what it is. You know, is this re. Redo all their vital signs. Um, figure out what it is that is making them feel this way, and then do what it do what it is that we can to turn it around. Call in reinforcements. Get some fresh eyes. One of the things that we talk about is you know it's really hard to lose a patient in the ER. When you have a patient that comes in unresponsive and you're working to try to turn them around and they instead progress to arrest and you're attempting resuscitation and it's unsuccessful, that's really, really difficult. When you have a patient that comes in sitting up talking to you and then they progress to arrest and then you lose them and they talked and died, those are the ones that haunt you even more. Uh, and that's something that this Dr. Cliff Reed that we mentioned, he uh, does a great podcast about that, This patient, these patients that so-called talk and die with this impending doom. So we're going to link that in the show notes. He says that if you have a patient who says, I'm going to die, and their blood pressure is hovering around the 50s, that's probably the last blood pressure you're ever going to see on them if you don't do something quickly. So,
0: wow.
1: Yeah. Is there any
0: sense? And you may get to it. I'm probably skipping ahead here. But is there any statistical sense of uh, correlation? How many patients who said "I'm gonna die" that actually do? You said there wasn't much work done on no. this, but that I would be very interested in trying to, uh, you know, quantify a relationship between people saying that and people actually um, coding or uh, or or term or. Um, um, What's the word you use? It's not dying, is it? Right, terminating, end of life, arresting. I don't know, arresting. But that, but you can bring them back after arrest, right? Sometimes. Yeah. Well, at any rate, I would be curious to see if there was a if there was a correlation between people who said they were gonna die and the ones who actually did, or even better, how many people were able to be brought back. Yeah, if they the statement st-
1: yeah, if they stated it, warned somebody yeah. and yeah. And so that kind of brings me to yeah. this next physician because he made some interesting observations. So this is Dr. John Alfred Ryle. He was an English MD and he was kind of the first one to document this phenomenon and, and really consider it a literal symptom. He described this in 1928 and he named it angor Amini, which is the sense of dying. And he writes about five pages on this condition and he says this is a symptom, you should consider it a symptom. And his hypothesis was that it originates from the medulla and that it was either organic or chemical in nature. He says this is not anxiety um, and and we should take it very seriously. Really unfortunately in almost hundred years. We haven't really come much further. It's still kind of basically what we what we subscribe to. We don't really know much more about it than that. About 25 years after he wrote those first five pages in kind of something beautifully poetic, as he is becoming more elderly, he starts developing angina, some chest pains, and he begins to experience this this impending sense of doom, this Angor Omni. And he further names it this aura of mortality. So he says that he has hundreds of episodes of it over the last five or six years of his life. So he writes this postscript about it and his son publishes it after he dies. Um, He says that anytime he would overexert himself and have this chest pain come on, he would also have a few seconds of this impending doom, I'm about to die. Uh, It would take his breath away, and he said it would just last for a few seconds. And then, after about two or three years of having it, he accidentally one time took a deep breath and realized that he could shorten the episode by breathing deeply through that through it. When you know the first few years, he would catch his breath and like be unable to. So then he realized maybe it has something to do with oxygenation because when he could take deep breaths, it would shorten the episodes. Who knows? Um, so still linking it to a medullary storm of some kind. So he kind of said this, this is an aura of angina or chest pain, similar to the aura that patients with seizures might feel before they convulse. You know, they kind of have like this sense that they might be about to have a seizure. Um, and he would get this impending doom before he would get the chest pain. So,
0: you know, you've heard have you ever heard of the cat, the the death cat and in a hospital somewhere that uh, always seemed to know when a patient was going to die and would go to that person's room and sit on their chest. And then, you know, about therapy dogs that are capable of uh, sensing in advance before their um, their human um, has a seizure um, and they're able to sort of react to it and, and prepare for it. I, I wonder if that um, correlates in some ways to some sort of brain, chem- some sort of chemistry that yes. could manifest in some kind of pheromone that these animals are picking up um, that is akin to, to this, uh, uh, yes. this aura of mortality, the, the, a, a yes. physical manifestation of it. Um, I wonder if that's related in some ooh, in some way.
1: Yes. What is the connection? Yeah. And so your your question was like, how many of these patients have made this declaration and then, you know, were able to be turned around, you know, or actually were peri arrest and then, you know, they, you know, were saved or they actually arrested and then were resuscitated or whatever. I wonder how many of these patients that made this declaration were like doctor. Riles, and um, had had previous episodes, like, you know, he says he had hundreds of episodes for five or six years. Um, so I wonder, these patients that come in, did did you have previous episodes that lasted for a few seconds before this ultimate last episode, or this episode here in our ER? Like, that research hasn't been done. So I, I find that to be super interesting. So we'll also link his five pages Um, that he wrote initially, and then his postscript. We'll put those in the show notes as well. If anybody wants to read those, they're kind of fascinating.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And also makes me hate entertainment a little bit more that they've been tossing around those phrases so cavalierly that um, when it really could have some diagnostic validity uh, in the ER. Um, Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so... You said there was three phrases we got, we got one, the one of them was a bonus, the looks like yeah. shit was a bonus phrase. So what's the third yeah. stand up and pay attention phrase?
1: So this one is neither by a patient or a physician or a nurse. So imagine that you are now out of the ER, you're on vacation, or maybe you are headed to a nursing conference, you're on an airplane, 30,000 feet, watching a movie, and here comes the pilot (laughs) overhead on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a medical emergency on board. If there are any medical professionals that can assist, please hit your call bell. Okay, I now have what asked are you, you do? about
0: this. <laughs> I know this has happened to you. I know this has happened to my other friends. At least a couple of them. Um, yeah. Very interesting. So yeah. it is a stand up and listen. So you're saying, yeah. no, you don't get to finish your gin and co- your gin and tonic, or theoretically you. Hopefully wouldn't have one. Um, no, you shouldn't ignore it and hope that somebody else gets up. But you should do something about it. Okay.
1: Well, should you? Do you? What happens? So um, basically, best we can tell, medical emergencies happen on about one in every 600 commercial flights. The reason why we say it's a best guess is because there's no standardized determination of what makes a medical emergency. No one has determined that. So it's just kind of a a guess, a best guess. So that's your odds of being involved in that. If you've flown about 600 times, you'll probably probably get the call. Um, There are over 2,700
0: flights out of Atlanta International Airport every day.
1: Yeah, so that's four... Almost five every day that are going to happen.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, And that can be anything from someone vomiting to someone arresting. There's no real definition of what makes a medical emergency. So it can be anywhere in there. Uh, Now, you mentioned, you know, some people have a little gin and tonic when they fly. Some people take a Dramamine or a Valium that's prescribed to them when they fly for you know, flight anxiety or whatever. Also, like what if
0: you're international, you're over in like, what are the like legal and
1: yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you are not in the United States and in Canada, you are not under any legal obligation to volunteer your services or volunteer the fact that you are a nurse or physician or a medic. That is completely up to you. Um, In other countries, those laws are different, and they may have compulsory, um, you know, compulsory laws that that say you do have to. Uh, There's also never been anyone prosecuted or sued for uh, aid that they have rendered uh, as a medical professional on a flight. You're protected by the Good Samaritan Law. So that's going to be up to you. If you have been drinking or you have taken a Valium or something sedative or whatever so that you can comfortably fly, maybe consider not, you know, and and it's impacting you, maybe consider not volunteering um, if you feel like that, you know, you're not at your best. So it's up to you whether you want to or not. What about the Hippocratic Oath? That's going to be up to each individual practitioner to do it. I was very surprised when it happened to me and i was telling the story to like my people my coworkers how many of them were like mm, I, i'm i'm not a nurse on a plane i'm a plumber <laughs> i was kind of surprised it was about 50/50 some of them were like i'm clocked out i'm on vacation i'm not i'm not i'm not stepping up yeah and that's what my I doctor guess...
0: friends have said they're like yeah i'm on vacation i don't want to i i, I have to deal with sick people sick people all the time i do think all of them would ultimately get up and do it but i think they've all said we kind of hope we're going to see somebody else get up before I do. And the good thing about flights in and out of Boston is that there's so many doctors here that there's probably more than enough on.
1: Okay. But let's say that it goes the opposite direction. Let's say that five or six people volunteer and hop up. So in all likelihood, what will happen and what should happen is... You know, the five or six of you should will say, well, like, I'm a dermatologist. Well, I'm a dentist. Well, I'm an ER nurse. <laughs> and then you kind of decide who's the most appropriate caregiver. Well, probably not the dentist. And listen, you guys are ER nurses. You're probably going to get tapped in because you are probably one of the most appropriate. When I responded, it happened to be me and one other person. He was an ER physician. I was an ER slash flight nurse. And the two of us cared for the patient. And let me say this, I had never met this ER physician before in my life. He practiced in a state that was thousands of miles away from my state, but we were like peanut butter and jelly. We spoke the same language, he was my people. We, uh, we were, I mean, just like we'd known each other for forever, it was so cool. Um, you're not gonna be asked for proof of licensure, they don't ask you to show your nursing license. They don't ask you to show your in They don't, whatever. So um, so now it's you and a an ER physician, let's say. Best case scenario. You got your peanut butter and jelly going on. All
0: right. So you got up and you said, I'm a nurse. He's a doctor. We're here to help. What happens next?
1: So my understanding is what's going to happen that you're not going to know about is that they're going to lock down the cockpit. And this is like a post 9-11 thing. So that if someone is using a a medical emergency as a distraction to do something naughty. um, So for safety reasons, the cockpit will be locked down and the flight attendants are going to contact medical control on the ground. So all of the airlines Contract with a medical control group, and they're going to be in touch with them on the ground. In my case, they did not tell us that either. So they didn't let us know that they were f- speaking with physicians on the ground. They let us do our thing. We assessed the patient. We uh, asked them to bring us the medical supplies, medical equipment, and we told them, you know, they asked us what the vital signs were. They, you know, they wrote it down. Uh, and what we didn't know is that they were reporting it down to this this medical control on the ground. We did some interventions. We started an IV. We gave some fluids. We put on some oxygen. They were, again, reporting all of that to medical control on the ground. My assumption then is if, if the physician at medical control on the ground thought that we were doing something inappropriate, they may have intervened. They didn't think that because they didn't intervene. Um, but... They're gonna gather information on our assessment and treatment recommendations. They're gonna relay that. Also, the flight attendants are trained in some basic first aid and some CPR skills from my understanding. Based on my experience, make sure that you ask the flight attendants to bring you all of the available medical equipment. Um, They brought us one of the medical kits, so it had like a 500cc bag of normal saline in it. Our patient needed more fluids than that. So as the physician and I were talking, we're like, man, we sure would like to give him some more fluids. They're like, well, we have more. And we're like, could you bring it to us, please? We <laughs> ask for all of the like we asked for all of the stuff. In the United States, the FAA has a requirement of what needs to be on each airplane. It's based on how many passengers are on that airplane. I have that list if you want to see it. But they do have ACLS drugs. The the airlines frequently will go above and beyond what is required. They had a defibrillator. We had no way to do like an EKG or even check a blood sugar. Also keep in mind that the, so here's a list. If there's zero to 50 passengers, they have one first aid kit, 150 passengers, two, 253, so on. And here's the, some of the things that they have. Bandages, splints, alcohol pads, scissors, a manual blood pressure cuff, a stethoscope, some D50, one to 1000 Epi, some Benadryl, some Nitro tabs, uh, some gloves. I will tell you the gloves in my kit were had to be XL. They were ginormous, way too big for me. But everyone was watching, so I had to use them anyway. Um, CPR masks. Atropine. A bronchodilator inhaled. I didn't see that in my kit. I guess it was there. Some lidocaine.
0: Did you say EpiPen? So,
1: yeah, there's some Epi. 1 to 10,000 and 1 to 1,000. Uh, 18-gauge, 20-gauge, 22-gauge. So they didn't have a reflux valve. They didn't have a uh, op site to cover the, they had tape. So they had about half of everything that we normally would use when we're starting a line. So you, you kind of have to like, you know, just make do really. But it, it did work out that the patient that that I happened to take care of, what he needed, they had. He was just profoundly dehydrated. So you said you had to
0: give them fluids. Did did you put it on a did you have a IV pole for? It or did you just dairy rig it by like hanging it from something above? How did you Yeah, we d- I just
1: literally I just literally held it okay. and just squeezed it in. Okay, so you do have to
0: sort of use some guerrilla tactics and Mhm. Okay, so cabins are pressurized, right? So what happens there? Yeah,
1: so so one thing to remember is that you know you're at thirty to forty thousand feet, so any conditions that a patient has on the ground are going to be exacerbated. Any kind of respiratory issues, they're going to need oxygen. Also, any body parts that have air in them are going to expand. So sinuses will expand, the inner ear will expand, bowels will expand. Um, the cabins are pressurized between five and eight thousand feet, roughly. Uh, so your geriatric populations, your pediatric populations, those patients, any conditions that they have on the ground, you take them to 30,000 feet, they are going to be exacerbated. Um, so just keep that in mind. Could a, um, could a change in air pressure
0: like that cause a thunderclap headache? Sure. Yeah, for sure. So what are the most popular or most frequent in-flight emergencies? Um, I'm assuming thunderclap headache isn't one of them, but
1: according to the research, the top five in-flight emergencies are syncope or near syncope, re- anything respiratory symptoms, nausea, vomiting, cardiac symptoms, and seizures.
0: All right. So what happens? So you treat the patient. Are they going to land the plane right away? Or what's the, do you know, what the protocol is there?
1: So that is one of the questions that you will be asked. Well, it depends on where in the flight you are, how close you are to landing, how close you are to having taken off. So do we need to turn back around and go back to where we took off from? Or do we need to divert to the closest airport? Do we need to land immediately? What do we need to do? They're going to ask you as the medical professional to make that decision. Um, I mean... Obviously, they're going to take, take your opinion under advisement, I should say. You know, you have limited medical equipment on, on there. It may not be sufficient to treat whatever is wrong with this patient. This is a really huge decision. So first of all, you're going to inconvenience everyone on board. Um, but also, there's a massive safety component. So when an aircraft takes off, they've got the amount of fuel that they need for the entire flight. So if you say we need to divert two hours early to... Closer airport, they either gonna have to land very, very heavy, which is unsafe, or they're gonna have to dump a bunch of fuel, which is not great. You may the closest airport may be a teeny tiny little airport that is not close to a hospital that has the resources that your patient needs. It may not be a stroke center, it may not be a cardiac center. So that might not be appropriate. Diversion is also very costly. Anywhere what I read was from 20000 to $750,000. Wow. But, you know, if this is an obstetric emergency and this is the life of the mother and the life of the child or this is a cardiac or a stroke and you're talking about this patient's brain and the rest of their life being permanently impacted by it, like, let's do it, you know? So, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's – it's a really big deal. We, in my case, we did not divert. We just said like, Hey, we just need to have EMS at the airport waiting at the gate for this guy. And he needs to be the very first one off. So do you, do you think that the
0: flight crew called for the medical professional as soon as they saw something going wrong, or did they attempt to address the situation themselves with basic first aid like are they are they like triaging it themselves before making that announcement which could lead to any number of things
1: i i don't think they had done anything before we got there and
0: do you think if you hadn't been able to treat the patient and there had been nobody there who had a medical any medical training whatsoever they would have made the decision to divert the plane
1: that's a really good question. Like, I'm I curious how
0: the flight crew reacts on a plane where they make that announcement and literally nobody stands up or there's nobody yeah. there who can help.
1: Ugh, what a bad day. What a bad day.
0: Yeah. Bad day for everybody.
1: One other thing that the, one of the articles that I read about this pointed out that um, I don't know that I remembered at the time, but don't forget that the patient has probably their own home meds with them. And maybe even like their inhaler or their glucometer or their, EpiPen or whatever they ha- they may have their own stuff that might be of use to you as well. So don't forget about their own medical supplies that they have brought with them that are available to you as a resource. Uh, I don't, rem- I don't remember thinking about that in the moment, but that's that's definitely a resource that you can use if that's something that's applicable in in your scenario. So, but part of that so, twenty thousand or seven hundred
0: fifty thousand dollars that it costs, it goes to paying you to fly for free from now on on that airline because you (laughs) stepped up right that's part of the expenditure uh
1: no I that's no but I will say that the airline that I flew on super 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 classy they did give us a ton of sky miles and um uh gift cards as as like a thank you for helping they were very very classy um, I was very impressed because that's not that. That what was my, very my nice. other friend got. She's like, I got nothing. <laughs> I didn't even get a free drink. <laughs> they still
0: charged me for my earpods. Well, <laughs> <the> ear. <laughs> I have
1: to, I have two nurse friends who responded to in flight emergencies, and one of them, he, the in flight emergency that he responded to was a psychiatric patient. And he ended up having to basically babysit the psych patient for the the duration of the flight. The other one responded to an arrest, and and no one else. Uh, on the plane, evidently knew CPR and he, w- he had to do CPR for, I mean, like 30, 40 minutes and this patient did not survive. So, I mean, these, these were both like super, super bad wow. <laughs> scenarios. Yeah, I and mean, I guess if yeah. you're going to respond to a, uh, to
0: a medical emergency on a flight, you want to be flying on like Virgin or, um, or British Airways and not like spirit. <laughs> <laughs> or Ryanair in Europe. You wanna make sure it's one of the one of the big airlines that have lots of money.
1: Well, this is what I have found now. Ever since that happened to me, is every time I fly now I assess every single patient as i'm walking by like who's it going to be this time and then (laughs) also like like
0: shit you're like go ahead and sit me right next to him
1: (laughs) (laughs) and then also like looking at how narrow the the walkway is like where would you even do cpr on this aircraft like there's no place no space (laughs) that's big enough to do like it's it's just not a great situation yeah
0: that's right where would you because you i mean you can't get like right on top you can't get next to them wow it's
1: so we'll, well I can also post a link to the if 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 anybody wants to look over what the FAA requires the commercial airliners to have in their in their medical first aid kit we can post the link to that as well it's just kind of interesting but you might want to consider now while your feet are on the ground what you will do when that call comes out if you'll respond or if you I had, I had a super great experience. I, I just thought it was amazing that it happened to be an ER physician that responded and how well he and I just clicked and just, and the fact that the patient had like probably one of the only complaints that we could actually like treat successfully um, with the things that they had. So, but anyway, it is something to consider before you're put in the situation
0: okay so um I'm gonna I'm gonna push back ever so slightly on you because I think everybody's then the hairs on everybody's neck in the airplane will stand up when they hear that and not just the medical professionals everybody else hopefully will never hear the other phrases that you have articulated so let's see we started with this is the worst headache of my life Yep which I guess you could hear
1: outside of the hospital. So, yeah, if you hear if you hear a friend or loved one say that, you better get the call 911 or get them to the hospital. So, that's a very it's a medical emergency. Very
0: important thing. I mean, presumably also if you hear one of your your loved ones or your friends say I'm going to die. Yep. Hopefully they're not there's some other symptom around to show you that there's that they're in trouble of some sort but that's a big one yep um if you hear another medical professional say this patient looks like shit that is another red flag stop drop and go help them go help them Mm -hmm. because there's something going on and if you're out in the world or specifically on a plane
1: There we
0: go okay four phrases to watch out for Three in the hospital, one just out in the world.
1: There you go.
0: Folks, we uh, appreciate you hanging in with us. And we hope that you have enjoyed uh, the little bit of a break that we've taken and that we're, we're coming back strong with this episode. Um, please uh, rate us on iTunes and send us an email if you have any questions um, or comments about this episode or any of our episodes. Uh, we are at the keywordpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us at keywordpodcast.com.
1: So what's the verdict? Was it a fun one or a serious one? So
0: uh, the fact that uh, diagnoses can be augmented by what are essentially catchphrases of a sort um, or that there's something common in our English-speaking language, you know, in, in our lexicon, and I, I presume that across other cultures... Um, I'm going to die in any other language would also resonate with practitioners in those cultures, in those languages. Um, I think that's interesting. So it's kind of it's 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 fun is the wrong word, to be sure, because they definitely portend uh, something potentially catastrophic. Um, but as a hint or a trick or a tip, which is, I think, what this falls under in the keyword podcasts mandate um, it's very interesting. Um, and it is a it is a quick little something that should trigger a reaction in ways that are less complicated. It, it, it will trigger complicated reactions, but it is such a simple thing to hear that I think probably makes anybody stop and notice. But um, if I was a, a, a new nurse or a new, new medical practitioner who might be predisposed to disregard those statements, um, especially if you watch way too many hour-long dramas like I do on TV, it's good to know that they have a lot of meaning and a lot of weight um, in this scenario or in these scenarios. So it's a fun one by virtue of it being pithy, um, mm-hmm. but it's terrifying in that there's this sort of commonality of experiences that have created um, phrases that can signal death potential death mm-hmm. uh, um it's mm-hmm. it's interesting It's so a good one good good, good interesting episode I'm
1: glad you liked it yeah we'll yeah back i found soon. it
0: fascinating well folks we hope you tune in next time and nisa talk to you soon see ya bye